0: Well, as, uh, as a refresher, we have been uh, kind of walking through systematic theology here in theological equipping class, and, uh, and so we've talked about theology proper, that is the study of God, His character attributes, His triunity, those kinds of things. Uh, we've talked about bibliology, which is the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, we've talked about uh, anthropology, the, uh, the doctrine of man, the study of man. We've talked about hamartiology, which is the study of sin. And uh, now we are in a section where we're talking about soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, the study of salvation. And we kind of have broken that up over a few semesters. And, uh, and we spent some time talking about uh, the accomplishment of redemption, the things that Christ has accomplished. And then now we've moved into talking about the application of redemption—that is, how what Christ has accomplished is actually applied to uh, to you and uh, and to me. And uh, and so uh, as we've been talking about this, we have uh, occasionally uh, touched upon uh, what are called the five points of Calvinism, and uh, and we've said this multiple times. I want you to hear this: I could care less. None of the elders, uh, all of the elders, could care less if you call yourself. Uh, couldn't care less if you call yourself um, a Calvinist or not. We want you to be Biblicists. It just so happens that we think that John Calvin, when it comes to this particular uh, doctrine was uh, more biblical than the opposing view, and so there are things that about John Calvin that we don't agree with. We don't worship John Calvin. Uh, we don't agree with him when it comes to paedo baptism, the baptism of infants, uh, for example. But uh, in this particular area, that is um, the uh, is your will or God's will primary when it comes to salvation. We think that John Calvin got some things right, and so we have talked about the what are called the five points of Calvinism. We've already tackled the first. Four of them: that is, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, and uh, irresistible grace. And then uh, today we're going to tackle the fifth point, which is perseverance of the saints. And you'll notice it makes this little uh, acrostic that is uh, tulip, and uh, and so that's a way that you can remember it. And so I want to give you a little refresher on this. We've talked about this a couple of times, but uh, John Calvin died in uh, in 1564. And, uh, and so just four years before his death, a guy named uh, Jacob Arminius was born, and, uh, and he studied under Calvin's uh, successor, whose name was uh, Theodore Beza. And, uh, and then after studying under him, he uh, began to pastor a church in the Netherlands, and, uh, and his uh, influence spread throughout the Netherlands, throughout Holland, and, uh, and then there was this reaction... That was called the Remonstrance. The Remonstrance, and uh, and there, basically, was this anti-Calvin club. That's what they kind of considered themselves. They protested uh, Calvinism, and they actually drafted five articles, uh, the Remonstrance. And so these are again, this is the the uh, club that uh, Arminius started, uh, called the Arminians. Uh, they called themselves the Remonstrants, the protest. They're protesting Calvinism, and they draft five articles. And, uh, and so these five points of Calvinism are a response to the Remonstrants. They're a response to the Arminian uh, critique of, uh, of Calvinism. And so that is uh, what took place at the Synod of Dort. The Calvinists kind of uh, came together, and they offered a rebuttal to the five points of Arminianism. And that is how we have the five points of Calvinism today. But originally, it wasn't this uh, sort of uh, acronym or acrostic. Uh, That didn't actually show up until sometime uh, in the early uh, 1900s or so. And uh, so that's a little bit of a history. But we're talking about perseverance of the saints uh, today. In particular, we're asking this question, how, and I think you have this in your notes. This is a quote by Wayne Grudem. How do we know that we shall continue to be Christians throughout our lives? Is there anything that will keep us from falling away from Christ, anything to guarantee that we will remain Christians until we die, or might it be that we will turn away from Christ and lose the blessings of our salvation? So, this is the question that Perseverance of the Saints is going to be dealing with. And so, here is the kind of the problem that sets the stage for Perseverance of the Saints. Within the Scripture, you will see there is this combination of two different things. You will see uh, both uh, passages that contain these sort of strong, really strong, vivid, robust passages that describe the, uh, the absolute assurance that Christians should have of their salvation. But then on the other hand, you will also find these, uh, these passages that are also r- really robust and strong uh, and clear that warn of the dangers of apostasy, the warn of the dangers of uh, of falling away. And so Thomas Schreiner kind of describes this problem as the tension between God's threats and God's promises. That in Scripture we see both threats that God makes, warnings that God makes, where He warns His people against falling away, but then we also see these promises that God makes that we will not fall away. So Perseverance of the Saints is trying to deal with this quote-unquote tension that we see between God's threats and, uh, and His promises. And so here's kind of the idea. Imagine, if you will, that we only talked about the promises of assurance of salvation. We never once talked about the warnings that uh, Scripture gives. Would that be very good at all for anybody in our congregation who may not be a genuine believer? Is it a good thing for you to stand in front of somebody who doesn't actually love and trust Jesus and tell them you have eternal life? No, right? That's not a a hard question, right? We're starting off easy this morning. All right, likewise, is it a good thing for you, though, to stand in front of someone who is a genuine believer, who loves and trusts Jesus, and for you to tell them you're going to hell? That's not a good thing either, right? But the problem is the Bible is going to have, again, these warnings and also these assurances. So let me give you this illustration. Uh, Let's imagine that uh, I say that you have cancer when you don't actually have cancer. What have I just done? Yeah, I've just lied, but I've also I've created for you this sort of unnecessary angst. Let's say I'm a doctor, all right, and I see you and I say you have cancer. I've confirmed that you have cancer. Now you go home and uh, you're upset. You're emotional. You're calling your family and friends and all that kind of stuff. You're experiencing anxiety and angst and all of these uh, sort of, uh, of, of heart conditions uh, as, uh, as you're wrestling with this. Now, on the other hand, let's imagine that you have cancer, and I'm a doctor, and I don't tell you that you have cancer. Right? You go about your business absolutely just kind of frolicking about, just kind of giggling through life. And yet you have this deadly disease. And so that's the problem that pastors have as they kind of tackle this issue of perseverance of the saints. That there are people in the congregation who, if I begin to stress the warnings of Scripture, there are people who need to hear those that actually don't love and trust Jesus. And they need to hear those warnings that if you don't believe, you, uh, you will go to hell. Uh, and then there are also those people though, who love and trust Jesus who might hear those warnings and might actually be disturbed by them. But on the other hand, if I just stress the assurance of salvation, uh, then I'm not doing a service uh, to those who uh, maybe don't love and trust uh, Jesus. So, uh, this is kind of the problem that is set up. So, I want to talk about uh, perseverance by beginning with a definition. So, this is uh, in your notes, a definition from Wayne Grudem. He says that the perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere, that's the, where the word perseverance comes from, uh, will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. So, there's two parts there. All who are born again will be kept, and uh, and only those uh, who are kept uh, have been truly born again. This is how the Westminster Confession, which is kind of one of the most uh, uh, kind of uh, the, the biggest, uh, the, the clearest articulations of Reformed theology states it, "...they whom God hath accepted in His blood, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. The perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability uh, that's the unchangeability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the effic- efficacy uh, of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the speed of God, the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from which all, from all which ariseth, also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan of the world, the prevalence of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves." So what Westminster says is that it is not possible for someone to fully and finally fall away from salvation, but it is possible for a genuine believer to persist in uh, some degree of sin, uh, at least for a... Season. So that's perseverance of the saints. You might, if you grew up in a uh, uh, kind of Southern Baptist context, uh, as uh, Parkway is affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, if you grew up in a Southern Baptist context, you might have heard this described before as eternal security and uh, so the eternal security of the saints. uh, The reason that we uh, historically do not use that word is because that tends to be a word that uh, is ripe for misinterpretation. Uh, Some uh, kind of use it uh, even for the idea that even if you apostatize, even if you completely renounce Christ, there are churches out there that teach that you will be fully saved, even if you uh, just fully go into atheism and for the rest of your life you uh, persist as an atheist, that you will uh, still be saved, whereas uh, the uh, more Calvinistic uh, branch would say that that is probably an evidence that you were never really saved uh, in the uh, first place. So, this is not just the idea that once saved, always saved. This is the idea that if you are truly saved, God will uh, preserve you, that you will persevere because God will preserve you. So, uh, in addition to being called perseverance of the saints, it's also often called the preservation of the saints. So, let's give some evidences uh, for that. The first being just logically. Logically. So, think about this. If God has known you from all eternity, which is what we talk about when we talk about unconditional election, God has known you, He's loved you, He's chosen you from all eternity, He's chosen you for all the myriad benefits of salvation, He's effectually atoned for your sins. Uh, That's what uh, atonement is about. He's provided faith and repentance as gifts. Uh, then how in the world could you fall away from salvation? That's sort of the logical uh, argument. If, in other words, if all the other points, if all of these things are true, if it's true that you were totally depraved, but you were chosen before the foundation of the world, that God has atoned for your sins in particular uh, by uh, providing for you irresistible grace, then this must be true as well. These things are all uh, taken together. They're like a, a cord of uh, five different strands. And, uh, and they all go uh, together. And so, this is a, a quote from Tom Schreiner that's in your notes. Uh, he kind of is commenting on this logical relationship, and he says, Let me make one personal comment about my theology at the conclusion. If I were not convinced of unconditional election, I would surely be an Arminian. The warning passages are so strong that I can understand why many think that believers can lose their salvation. What is interesting to me is that there are so many believers who reject unconditional election and yet they hold on to eternal security. Such a position, I would suggest, is the most inconsistent of all. I think it is maintained not by virtue of detailed exegesis but as a theological a priori. May I be pardoned for thinking that such a position flows more from the heart than the head? Such people want to badly. Uh, so, want to believe so badly in eternal security that they leap over the warning passages and sustain their belief in eternal security. Personally, I find the Arminian view that believers can, can and do lose their salvation much more biblically coherent than such a position. Of course, I am convinced that both of the above positions are wrong, for I am persuaded that the Scriptures do teach unconditional election, and that God's electing and sustaining grace is such that His sheep will never perish. They never perish precisely because they listen to the Good Shepherd's voice, which effectively admonishes and warns them lest they fail to follow Him and, uh, and perish. So, here's what Schreiner is thinking. He's responding to this uh, sort of… So, historically, uh, Baptists believed in uh, Reformed theology. Historically, Baptists were five-point Calvinists. Uh, over the, uh, the past 60, 70 years or so, uh, you have seen more and more of a uh, kind of an abandoning of these three positions, and, uh, and so uh, Southern Baptist uh, uh, contemporarily, uh, tend to kind of default towards believing in this and believing in this, but kind of getting rid of this. And uh, what Schreiner is saying is you can't do that. You can't simply uh, pick and choose which of the points go together because they all uh, go uh, together. So, that's the sort of logical defense of the perseverance of the saints, but uh, I think you can make a very compelling biblical case for uh, for the doctrine, and so that's where we ultimately are going to make our argument is not on the basis of just the consistency of the system, but instead uh, the Bible itself. And so, seven different uh, textual evidences for the, uh, the perseverance or preservation of the saints. So, the first one, any passage that you read about election, about, uh, about being elected unto salvation, about being elected unto adoption, any of those sorts of things. So, this kind of goes along with the other. Anything that you read about being elected assumes that you're going to uh, be preserved, and uh, that's what election is. Ephesians 1 4 through 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So, in other words, if he has predestined us for adoption, then how can we not be adopted? That's sort of uh, the idea there. So, that's the first textual evidence. Any of the various passages, and there are dozens of passages that talk about election or predestination or God's choosing or whatever it might be, are going to assume or imply uh, perseverance. Uh, A second place that you could look, Philippians 1, 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is certain of this, that God is going to bring to completion what he has, uh, he has begun. Has anyone ever started a project and then not ended it? Right? God doesn't do that. All right. God doesn't have these sort of honeydew do lists that, uh, that He just never kind of gets around to doing. If God begins something, He is going to complete that thing. And He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is a promise. And so therefore, if there are some that God began a project with, but it doesn't end the project with that God has failed in His promises. And we have a much bigger problem than perseverance of the saints. We have a big problem with God not being faithful. This is why this, is important, this doctrine is so important. is because it deals with the faithfulness of God. Can God ultimately be trusted to do the things that He has promised uh, to do? John 6, 38-40. This is Jesus speaking. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Listen to that. That is the will of the Father, the one who sent Jesus, that he should lose nothing of all that he has given, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, this is a promise. That if you look upon uh, Jesus, and you believe in Him, that you will have eternal life, that you will be raised up on the last day. Again, uh, to deny the perseverance of the saints is to deny the faithfulness of, uh, of God, to deny the faithfulness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. John 10, 27-29, Jesus speaking again, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So imagine if I take this cap and I place it in my hand, all right, now there's some of you in this room who are going to be able to get that cap out of my hand, but imagine now this is Jesus using all of his divinity, all of his omnipotence, all of his sovereignty, and he's holding this cap. There's none who are going to be able to get that cap out of his hand. And then imagine that on top of Jesus, you also have the Father that's holding on to it. Do you really think that you're going to be able to pry off the Father's hand and then pry off the, the Son's hand to be able to get the cap out? That's the idea that Jesus is giving there, that none are able to snatch uh, God's uh, people out of uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit's uh, hands. Or uh, a fifth evidence, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire uh, possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So this is just one of the multiple passages of Scripture that speak of uh, a guarantee, that the, the Spirit is a guarantee. And uh, so that word, a guarantee, is a payment that obligates the contracting party to make further payments. Anyone ever remember Layaway? Used to have Layaway. I've talked before about how I used to work at Marshall's, and we'd have stuff that was on Layaway from like 30 years before. So it's like I'm working there in the 90s. We have like bell bottoms that are on Layaway. It's like no one's ever buying these. And, uh, and so uh, that's kind of what we might think of this sort of guarantee. But the guarantee that Scripture is going to talk about is something that obligates one party to actually finish making the payments. That's the guarantee. That's the down payment of the Spirit. And so it's not like a down payment if you make a down payment for a vacation home, and then you end up not going. and You just lose the down payment. That's not at all what this down payment is like. So imagine we don't really have this in our, uh, our contemporary context, but imagine a type of down payment that exists that somehow is going to completely obligate you toward finishing making payments. That's the down payment of the Spirit uh, that is promised here. A payment which obligates the contracting party to make further payments. So, if at any point you receive the Spirit, you have received this type of guarantee, and it cannot be taken away. There cannot be any who God just simply leaves on uh, layaway. Who just simply uh, kind of rest in there? That's a fifth evidence. Passages which talk about any sort of guarantee. Uh, Romans 8 is another one. There's a lot of places that we could look at in uh, in Romans 8. Go back and uh, and listen to our sermons on uh, on Romans 8, and you can uh, kind of see some of the nuances. Uh, But uh, from the very first passage there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, present. It's not just that there will be no condemnation at some future date, if you, preserve, if you persevere, no, right now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And thus, for you to face eternal death, for you to face condemnation or whatever it might be, again, is, uh, would show God to be unfaithful to this promise. Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Those who think you can fall away from salvation, let me ask you this question. How does God work that together for good? If the very definition of what is good, how can it be good for you to go to hell? If you love and trust Jesus and it's possible for you to lose your salvation, then that means that it's possible for you to go to hell, which means that this promise isn't true because God can't work that together for good for you because you're in hell. Or immediately after that, Romans 8, 29 through 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then listen to the language here uh, and uh, and how there are none that kind of slip through the cracks. Those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. It doesn't say that some... That he predestined, he also called. And some of those he justified, and some of those he glorified. No, if you are foreknown, and remember we've talked about foreknowledge before, it's not God's knowledge of your future choice, it's God's for choosing you, it's for his for loving you. Uh, those whom he for loved, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. If you're foreknown, you will be predestined. And what are you predestined for? You're predestined in order that you might be conformed to the image of Christ. And if you're predestined, you are called, and if you're called, you are justified, and if you're justified, you are glorified. Again, none fall through the cracks here, so uh, this is another compelling evidence for the perseverance of the saints. Or Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? The rhetorical answer to that is nothing. None of those things can separate you from the love of Christ. So he just has given a number of examples, but you could throw anything else in there. Nothing separates you from the love of Christ. Romans 8, 38 through uh, 39, he makes that abundantly clear. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is not mentioned there? Like, what reality, what is the one exception that you could think of that would somehow disprove this promise? Oh, okay, you've mentioned life and death and angels and rulers and all that kind of stuff, but there's one thing that could possibly lead me to lose my salvation. What is that one thing? He's already said, nor anything else in all creation, anything that you can imagine. And so what some people would do is they'd say, yeah, but I can, I can separate myself. Well, aren't you part of creation? Nothing nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's another evidence uh, for this uh, doctrine. And then our last one is any passage that speaks about eternal life. Anywhere you read about eternal life, just imagine what does it mean to think, I have eternal life if you can lose it? Then it's not eternal. It never was eternal in the first place, right? And so, uh, just the very image or the language of eternal life uh, suggests that you can't lose it. Just one example of this, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life uh, believed. So, this is really what it boils down to. What do you believe is ultimate? What do you believe is ultimate? When it comes to salvation, do you believe... That your will is ultimate, or do you believe that God's will is ultimate? Whether you are a, quote-unquote, "calvinist" or a quote-unquote, "Arminian," or whether you have no idea what those words mean, doesn't matter. You believe that in some sense, God's will is active, and in some sense, man's will is active, but which is decisive? Which one is ultimate? Yours or God's? Because God says, "No one will snatch them out of my hand." God says nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love uh, of God. Or another way to ask the question, which is decisive? Which is ultimately decisive, your faith or God's faithfulness? Which one is ultimately decisive, your faith or God's faithfulness? That's really the issue. Does God fulfill the promises that He makes to His people. That's what Perseverance of the Saints is all about. Does God fulfill the promises that He makes to His people? Can you trust His promises, or does He have a tendency or even the possibility that maybe this one promise that He's made, He will not? I think we all know people who are really trustworthy, but we think, you know what, at some point in their life, they probably told a lie. At some point in their life, they weren't able to come through on something that they promised. The reality of God is that His faithfulness demands that He has never once been unfaithful. He has never been untrustworthy. So, a couple of passages, 1 Peter five 10, I'm not sure if this is in your notes or not, but this is just a passage on the faithfulness of God to fulfill the promises that He has made. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Listen to that promise. He will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Or First Thessalonians five twenty three through 24. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. In fact, that's part of the condition of this sort of new covenant promise that God makes. We tend to think of God's uh, covenants as kind of an if-then sort of thing, and that is kind of how the Mosaic Covenant functioned. In general, in the Mosaic Covenant, God did say, if you do this, then I will do this. If you're faithful to these laws, then I will bless you. If you're not faithful, I will kick you out of the land. The problem is that we read the New Covenant through that same lens, and that is an issue because the New Covenant is different from the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic covenant was, if you do this, then I will do this. The new covenant is, I will do this, and therefore you will do that. Does that make sense, the difference there? That's the language, uh, by the way, of the, the, prov- uh, the promise of the prophecy of the new covenant. Jeremiah 32:40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. God says, I will do this. Therefore, you will do that. My faithfulness is not dependent upon your faithfulness. Your faithfulness is dependent upon my faithfulness. That's the new covenant promise. So, let's talk about how we are kept. How do we persevere? And uh, throughout the Scripture, over and over and over and over again, you'll see this emphasis on God's role in, uh, in our being kept or our being uh, preserved. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Or Colossians 1, 22 through 23 He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And of which I, Paul, became a uh, minister, that he has this intention to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So you see there this sort of uh, tension. Again, that uh, that Schreiner would call it the tension between God's uh, promises and uh, and His threats. There see that there is some sort of role that we play in here. Uh, if you hold fast to the word I uh, preach to you, Jude, uh, I think this is Jude one says. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So You might ask yourself, well, who keeps us? Jude twenty one which says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So you might say, aha, this is my role. I am to keep myself. But look just a few verses down, Jude 24 through 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever forever. Amen. So you see that there is this sense in which we are to keep ourselves, but there's this greater sense in which God keeps us. The way that God keeps us is uh, is by influencing and empowering our faith so that we might hold fast. Does that make sense? The way that God keeps us, the way that we experience perseverance, the way that God preserves us is by uh, preserving our faith by preserving our repentance, by preserving this condition of our uh, hearts. Then you might ask the question, well, what about the biblical examples of those who fall away? For example, Judas or Demas, where Paul is writing and says Demas has uh, fallen in love with his present world and he has uh, departed. Or uh, Jesus is talking about this sort of reality in Matthew uh, 7, 21 through 23, where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what about these sorts of examples of those who uh, fall uh, away? I think a really helpful text to look at is 1 John 2. 19 so you should have in that in your notes if you'll read along this will be really helpful to, to kind of explain this phenomena of, uh, of those who seem to fall away uh, by the way we're going to uh, uh, hopefully preach through first John um, here in uh, in a few months after we finish Romans I think we're going to do the book of Jonah the Old Testament prophet and then look at first second and third uh, John so that's just kind of a preview of the next year and a half or so. But First John 2.19 says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they would have been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So, listen to the logic there. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they would have been of us, then they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So, I think you could apply that to cases like Judas or Demas or maybe other people that you know in your life who seem to have apostatized, uh, and, uh, and what the author is, uh, is saying there is that you do have those who go away. You do have those who depart. You do have those who turn away from Christ, but those are uh, those who never truly believed in, uh, in the first place. That's the uh, what he is, uh, was talking about there. So then you might ask the question, well, then how do I know? How do I know if, uh, if a particular season of sin in my life is just this sort of temporary backsliding that's possible for a believer, or if it's actually an evidence or a movement towards uh, full apostasy, this First John 2 uh, reality? What's interesting is you never see anything in the entire Bible that answers that question. You never see anything in the Bible that answers the question, how do I know if, uh, if this, so I am I'm, uh, imagine that I'm engaged in some sort of habitual, unrepentant season of sin, whatever that sin is, how do I know if this is actually evidence just that I am a, a genuine believer but I'm just uh, giving in to this sin, or if this is evidence that I'm not actually a believer and the Bible is not going to answer that question for us fully for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first one being because the command is the same regardless. The command is the same that you are to repent from your sins and turn in faith uh, to God and the gospel. Rather than helping people to try to figure out whether they truly believed in the first place, the Bible is going to call us uh, to help people to believe now. So I think what we uh, tends to do, uh, what we tend to do is we tend to uh, just kind of oversimplify and reduce the question of, uh, of whether or not someone is a believer just by thinking of the lens of conversion. Did someone pray the prayer? Did someone say the right stuff? Did someone get dunked in the water? Uh, whatever it might be. Instead of asking the question uh, of, is someone a disciple? Is someone really following after, uh, after Christ? And so I think one of the reasons the Bible is not going to answer this question for us is because the command is the same regardless. Whether you believed 10 years ago or 50 years ago or whether you haven't believed yet, the command is still the same. That is that you repent and you believe. So if there is any sort of unconfessed, unrepentant, habitual sin in your life right now, the command for you is that you repent and believe. Whether that means that you never really believed or never really repented before or that you did and you're just kind of backslidden, the command is going to be The same. The second reason that it doesn't answer the question is because you should never presume upon God's grace. Imagine, if you will, that you were to think, it's okay to have an affair because I'm saved. What would that suggest uh, of your understanding of God's grace, of the gospel, of salvation, of God's goodness, of all of those sorts of things? Same thing for you to think, it's okay for me to look at pornography because I'm saved. That's not the way that God wants you to uh, to think. And so, uh, grace isn't some sort of license to continue in unrepentant sin. We've talked about that quite a bit when we walk through uh, Romans uh, chapter 8. So, the Bible doesn't answer this sort of question that we might have in order that we might have a sense of fear to some degree. Now, that's something that uh, maybe… Is not really in your vocabulary as it comes to your relationship with uh, with Christ. Churches don't want to talk about believers should fear, but that is a biblical sort of idea. Look at Hebrews four one it should be in your notes. Therefore, if uh, therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Just make a plug, by the way, for. Um, good Bible translation, all right? And so, we use the ESV here. One of the reasons is because it tends to be pretty literal. Um, I think the NIV is an okay translation. If you use the NIV, uh, it's certainly not uh, heretical or anything like that. This is a place where I think that they just have completely missed the mark. The NIV here doesn't say, let us fear. It says, let us be careful. Think about the different nuance between being careful and fearing. You're careful as you're carrying a, you know, your grandmother's china or something like that, you don't want to break it. You're fearful if you're carrying like a, a bowl and in that is some sort of an asp or a viper or something like that, right? There's a different nuance there. And, uh, and so this is uh, Romans 11.20. We, we uh, preached to that a, a few weeks ago. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear Philippians two twelve through 13 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So you should have this sort of healthy uh, fear that is reverence and respect and dependence uh, upon God, and you should be disturbed if there, is, uh, if there are uh, pockets in your life of unrepentance, habitual, Uh, unconfessed uh, sin, and that's why you see all of these sort of effectual exhortations and warnings uh, throughout Scripture. And uh, and so the book of Hebrews is probably the most well-known for these uh, sorts of things. Um, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 3, uh, all the way through 4, Hebrews 5 and 6, Hebrews 10, uh, Hebrews 12. You have uh, all kinds of warning passages. I'll just read one of them, Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness and the wor- of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near. Uh, to being cursed, and its end is to be uh, burned. So, you have a number of warning passages, uh, not only in Hebrews, but these are probably the most famous warning passages. And so, how do we interpret these warning passages? What do we do with them? There's basically five different uh, uh, options that have been uh, put forth. There could be others, but these are the kind of the five most common. And so, the first way that some people handle this is to say, these warning passages are to actual believers… And it's actually possible to lose your salvation. That's the, uh, the view of classic Arminianism. That's the view of um, uh, the uh, Wesleyan system, named after John Wesley, the Methodist uh, church, and so forth. And so, that's the first way that some people interpret these passages, that these uh, warnings are intended for believers and that the implication is that it's actually possible to lose your salvation. And uh, so that's Wesleyan Arminianism. A second way that uh, this can be taken is that these are believers, but it's not salvation that it's talking about. It's instead just rewards, and uh, that is kind of the idea that is advocated by those who teach free grace theology, which we talked about. My alma mater, DTS, uh, was one of the big bastions of free grace theology uh, 25, 30 years ago, maybe 40 now. But uh, that's the second way that it's not really talking about you can lose your salvation, but it is just talking about rewards. Uh, a third way that you could take this, although this is uh, uh, not as uh, common of view, is that these are believers, but the warnings are just merely hypothetical. So, this isn't actually going to happen, uh, but uh, they're hypothetical sort of warnings. The historic Reformed teaching, uh, including uh, the esteemed Wayne Grudem, who's systematic theology we've used as kind of an outline for this course, that these are, are not true believers, but instead they function retrospectively as tests of the genuineness of one's confession. In other words, if you do the things that Hebrews warns you to do, then that is a test that shows that you never were a believer in the first place. That's how Reformed uh, teachers have typically uh, taught this. I think a better position… Uh, is offered by Tom Schreiner. Tom Schreiner, we read a quote by him earlier. He's a professor uh, at Southern Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, he wrote a really good book on uh, Perseverance of the Saints. Uh, I think it's like Run to Win the Prize or something like that. Um, But uh, his view is that these are real believers, and this danger is real. It's not just hypothetical, but the warning passages are the very means by which believers are preserved. The warning passages are the very means by which believers are preserved. And so, he gives as an example this, uh, this illustration from Acts 27. You remember the story of Acts 27? Uh, Paul uh, has already appealed to Caesar. He's on his way to, uh, uh, to, uh, be, uh, to Rome, and uh, he's on a ship, and the ship begins to uh, be tossed by a storm. And, uh, and picking up him uh, there in 21. Since they have been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incur this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, uh, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. So God has told them, no one is going to die. Just a few verses later, as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, the bow, the bow, uh, Paul said, this, context is helpful there. Uh, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in this ship, you cannot be saved. So how do those things go together? Paul has just said, everyone is going to be saved. Everyone is going to live. But he says, if you get off the ship, you're not going to be saved. How are both of those things true? Because, God, uh, because Paul's warning here in verses 30 through 31 is the means by which God's promise is going to be confirmed. In other words, Paul is going to give this warning, the people are going to hear the warning, they're going to heed the warning, they don't get get off the boat, they don't get into these life rafts, and so therefore God is going to preserve them. That's what Schreiner says uh, of these warning passages. The warning passages are the means by which God preserves His people. In other words, that those who are truly regenerate, those who love and trust Jesus, they hear this warning, they think, I don't want that to be me, and so therefore they take this warning to heart and they repent and they confess, and they believe, and they don't fall away. Does that make sense? That's what Schreiner says. So, in applying the warning passages, I think this is really helpful. As you uh, encounter any of these warning passages in uh, in Scripture… Here's what Grudem says. In fact, in all of the passages we're continuing to believe in Christ to the end of our lives is mentioned as one indication of genuine faith. The purpose is never to make those who are presently trusting in Christ worry that sometime in the future they might fall away. And we should never use these passages that way either, for that would be uh, to give wrongful cause for worry in a way that Scripture does not intend. Rather, the purpose is always to warn those who are thinking of falling away or have fallen away that if they do this, it is a strong indication that they were never saved in the first place. Thus, the necessity for continuing in faith should just be used as a warning against falling away, a warning that those who fall away give evidence that their faith was never real. Or Lorraine Bettner, who said, uh, the primary purpose for these, uh, of these passages, however, is to induce men to cooperate willingly with God for the accomplishment of His purposes. They are inducements which produce constant humility, watchfulness, and diligence. Again, Schreiner calls them warning signs. So, imagine that you see, I've used this illustration before, but imagine you see a, a sign as you're driving through the Rockies, and that sign says falling rocks. When you see that sign, what do you do? Do you just assume, oh no, woe is me, I'm going to get crushed. You call your wife and you say goodbye, right? You, you say, give the kids a kiss for me and tell them I love them. No, obviously that's absurd. You just turn around and go drive back home because you just assume there's no way I could possibly make it through this obstacle. God's throwing rocks at me, right? No, you don't do that either. Do you just assume there's no real rocks? This is some sort of big governmental conspiracy. Rocks don't even exist, right? You don't do that either. What do you do? You see falling rock sign. What do you do? Just pay attention, right? Open your eyes. Maybe this is not a good stretch of the highway to be texting or whatever it might be, right? That's how the warning signs are going to function, right? They're not functioning in such a way as you read the warning and you say, oh no, I guess I'm going to fall away. I guess I'm going to commit apostasy. They're also not functioning so you just go, well, that's not possible anyway. I don't need to worry about that. They're warning signs, they're, they're, they're this call for you to take heed, to take heart, to open your eyes, to pay attention, to be diligent, to be humble, to be watchful, all of these uh, sorts of things. So, give them the proper weight and, uh, and respect. I want to close just briefly by talking about assurance of salvation because this is connected to perseverance of, uh, of the saints. And so, If you're an Arminian, uh, again, I don't care if you consider yourself a Calvinist or not, I care that you are a Biblicist, Uh, but if you are an Arminian, then you will say that this Calvinistic sort of uh, position uh, gives people no assurance whatsoever because they don't really know. How do they know God's secret counsel? How do they really know if they're elect or if they're one of these people that thinks they're a believer and not really a believer and they're going to fall away or whatever it might be? The Calvinist is going to respond and say, well, you are no better, Arminian, because you think it's actually possible to wake up one day and not love and trust Jesus and then lose your salvation. So, the issue is not really Calvinistic or Arminian. It's this sort of… it's a Christian problem. The issue of assurance of salvation is just a Christian problem because all believers are subject to fleshly temptation, demonic temptation, whatever it might be, toward doubt and, uh, and despair. And so… I want to talk a little bit about roots of doubt and diagnosing doubt and then some tips for pursuing assurance, and we'll do this just in the next couple of minutes so we can take some questions. So, roots of doubt. Here are some reasons that you might experience doubt uh, in your walk with Christ. The first reason is that maybe you don't really love and trust Jesus, in which case you should doubt. If you don't, if you aren't really saved, then you should doubt whether or not you're saved. It's one of the, the roots of doubt, that you actually lack salvation. Another reason that you might doubt your salvation is because you have secret sin. Now, in which case I would say that you shouldn't doubt your salvation, but you should repent. That is God's warning sign to you to call you to repentance. Or another one is maybe you're just forgetful. Maybe you just lack faith. Uh, maybe you are one of those, like Jesus would say, oh, you have little faith, and you just don't remember God's promises, in which case you shouldn't doubt your salvation, but you should remember God's promises. And so in each of these cases, whether it's lack of salvation or it's secret sin or forgetfulness, this feeling of doubt is actually a gift from God because it's calling for some sort of response in you. It's kind of like a check engine light on your car that doesn't actually diagnose what the problem is. The check engine light doesn't actually say... Uh, what the issue is. It just says there is an issue. Likewise, if there is doubt, there is an issue there, whether that issue is that you're not really a uh, believer, or that uh, you have secret sin, uh, or that uh, you're just uh, forgetful and, uh, and you lack faith. But in each of these cases, um, uh, you should uh, you should do something. It should awaken you to uh, some sort of reality that's demanding a response. And so, uh, when it comes to diagnosing our doubts, you have the check engine light. You open the hood. You want to look and you want to see what's going on there. That's what the Book of First John is about. That's one of the reasons that we're going to be preaching through it uh, in a, a few months. And so, he gives us three tests that we can look at. Three tests to kind of diagnose diagnose our faith and see. Uh, Is it that I uh, truly am not a believer, or am I a believer, and it's just secret sin or forgetfulness or some other sort of reason? So, he said there are three tests that you give in order to see if you actually have been born again, if you actually love and trust Jesus. The first one is doctrinal. Do you believe the right things? doesn't mean you have to have perfect theology, but it does mean that uh, that you have kind of the basics, the essentials, the orthodox beliefs uh, correct. Uh, So, that's the first one, a doctrinal test. The second one is a moral test. Am I genuinely trying? Am I moving in this trajectory in which I'm genuinely trying to put sin to death and walk in holiness? We spent a couple of weeks talking about sanctification over the past couple of weeks. I'd go back and listen uh, to that. That's the second test. Is there a general pattern in my life where I'm trying to put sin to death? I'm genuinely trying to vivify the things of the Spirit. And then the last one, an ethical or social test. Am I loving and serving others? am I loving and, uh, and serving uh, others? And so that's the way that we diagnose doubt. If, there is, if you meet the doctrinal test and the moral test and the social test, that is a good evidence that you have actually been born again. But let me give you some practical tips for pursuing assurance, and then we'll be, uh, we'll be done, or we'll take questions. Practical tips for pursuing assurance. These are things that you can actually do that will actually increase your assurance of salvation and decrease the doubts that you experience. The first one, learn much of the Lord Jesus for every look at yourself. Take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. One of the things that you have to do when you experience doubt is you have to do a degree of introspection. You have to do a degree of self-examination. The problem with that is because the more that you focus on your doubt, the more that you focus on your despair, the more that you focus on your depression, the more that that becomes a cycle. And it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And so what uh, this Pastor Robert Murray McShane is saying in the quote that I just read is, uh, for every one look at yourself, you need to look t- ten times at Christ. That's where our focus is. And our focus is not on ourselves. The focus is not on our doubts. The focus should always be on Jesus and, uh, and the gospel. A second one. That you can do to pursue assurance is to continue in the spiritual disciplines, to read the Bible, to meditate on God's promises, to pray, to fast, to serve others, to sing, engage in corporate worship. In other words, you should not expect God to grant you assurance when you're neglecting the very means of grace that He has provided for your edification and encouragement. A third thing you can do to pursue assurance is to make every effort to mortify sin the sin doesn't condemn us. We've already read, there's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The Scriptures do suggest that if there is unrepentant, habitual, secret sin in your life, that it will rob you of assurance. God will turn on that check engine light in order to show you something is wrong. And so make every effort to mortify sin. So if you hate your sin, but you just struggle with it, I'm not talking... Uh, about you. But if you tolerate your sin, if you play with it, if you coddle it, if you secretly love it, that's a sign that something is really wrong and uh, you should check uh, the engine. Fourth, talk to others about your struggle, to find a faithful friend who will listen and encourage you toward Christ, to talk to your community group leader or an elder or other staff member or a deacon or whatever it might be to drag your doubt into the light. In other words, despair festers in uh, in the dark and so if you're struggling with some sort of sin or shame from some sort of sin the very thing that you most want to do in that moment is to hide and yet that's the very worst thing for you the very worst thing for you is to hide that and to uh, to kind of just circle the wagons and to isolate or whatever it might be um Fifth, if your doubts are based on some sort of intellectual obstacle, maybe you have a doubt of your salvation, but it's rooted in some sort of intellectual thing. You can't get over uh, what this passage means or how do we deal with evolution or dinosaurs or I don't know, whatever it is, then uh, the encouragement is to seek help from a knowledgeable friend or pastor. If you have this sort of lingering doubt, don't let it uh, snowball into an avalanche. Sixth, posture yourself to hear from God. This might mean that you abstain from media for a season, you take a trip away from the noise of life, you get up before the rest of the family, whatever it might be. That's not a means to manipulate God into speaking to you, but it's just simply a a recognition of the fact that your life is often filled with other noises that can prevent you from hearing uh, 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 the Spirit comforting and assuring you. And then lastly, just persevere. In some sense, your experience of the presence of Christ in this life will always be lacking because uh, God has intended that the full riches of His redemption are reserved for the resurrection and restoration of all things. So, those are some practical tips that you can uh, engage in to pursue uh, assurance. Zach, you want to come up? And then we'll take just a few minutes of, uh, of questions. Sorry we went a little bit over. If you're serving with uh, uh, preschool, if you would, go ahead and transition out.